today changes my whole entire life. Welcome to Gridability, a podcast about the power of perseverance, overcoming seemingly insurmountable odds to attain the life of your dreams. I'm your podcast host, Adam Clausen, and with me in the studio today is the beautiful and ever-radiant Ro Clausen. Hello. I'm excited for today. I'm excited for today's guest, who I literally just met a couple of seconds ago, although I've heard so much about him. And I have to say, I am really excited for this interview because right before we left the house, you were on the phone with him on speaker. And he said one of the greatest quotes that I had never heard. He said right before he was released from prison, and this is not verbatim, so he'll have to correct me, but something along the lines of, I was given the gift of desperation and that's what set forth change into motion. And I was like, whoa, that's like, that gave me the chills. So I want to unpack that with him as we progress through the interview, but I'll throw it back to you to introduce him. (laughs) What a great introduction, right? Because as, as soon as you heard that, she started texting and I didn't know what she was doing at the time, but she was sending that quote to me in a text. So look at this, you're already having an impact and everyone who's tuning in today, I want to introduce you to my friend, Jason and Sarah. All right. Yes. Thank you so much for the the privilege of being allowed to come on the show, you know, and a lot of times when people hear that gift of pain and desperation, it's like, you know, what, what does that really even mean? You know? And so I think about all those times when the consequences were great, when the negative emotions, the guilt, the shame, the embarrassment, the remorse, the regret, when those negative emotions were just raining so heavy on me, you know, and I had some willingness to want to do something different. And maybe I went to treatment, maybe I went to detox, maybe I made some changes, but a lot of the times I got relief, not recovery. But this last time when I was given that gift, that gift of pain and desperation, had the willingness to want to do something different, I did. And fast forward almost six years later, and and it's a miracle what my life has become. So thank you for having me on today. Of course. And what a great way to look at that too, because how many people play the victim and they would never look at pain and desperation as, quote, a gift where, you know, it's, oh, it's the world, it's, you know, it's this person, it's that person, it's the circumstances. And you're looking at it as, I was given this gift, and now what am I going to do with it? How beautiful. Yeah, exactly. And, and I love that fact, because recently, there's been a lot of, you know, whenever we talk about prison, and people are highlighting all of the negative things on the inside. And it's important that we shine some light on that. But what we love to do is shine some light on the stories of hope and inspiration, individuals who have transformed their lives and who have inspired others to do the same. So I know you have an amazing story, and I really want to make sure that our listeners get an opportunity to hear about your transformation. Um, But we always like to start with the backstory. So Tell us a little bit more about who you are and kind of prior to you ending up, you know, in trouble, in prison. Tell us a little bit of that backstory. Where were you and what were you doing? Yeah, you know, so just a little quick history on me, you know, um, you know, I'm from Arizona and big Italian family, right? Everything that comes with that. 
Um, but I come from a great home. My parents are still married. They love me. They've supported me through every single thing that I've been through. I have a loving wife, tons of different support. Um, and when I look over my childhood and really had an opportunity to reflect on it, I look at some really pivotal moments um, that really were some you know, important things in my life. Like the first moment would probably be in eighth grade. My parents let me have a graduation party and uh, high school kids came to my eighth grade party. And I immediately started this seeking validation through others, uh, ego, um, wanting to be light. And that became a constant theme throughout my life. Um, hold on, hold on but, real quick. I don't, yeah, I want to, yeah. I want to stay with that for a second. Cause I think that's a, that's a pivotal point. You keyed in on, um, you know, for a lot of young people uh, making those decisions, seeking that validation. What did that look like for you? You said some high school kids showed up. What do you mean? Yeah, what kind so, of validation were you seeking? Yeah, you know, um, just wanting to be liked. I think everyone wants to be liked. You know, I wasn't always the coolest kid, but if I had the house that had the parties, my parents traveled a lot. So we had a home that I was able to put it this way. If my parents were gone for longer than three hours in, in uh, <laughs> high school, I was having a full scale party with a keg, jungle juice. I got 17 minor consumptions of alcohol in high school. The police used to just patrol, you know, our neighborhood, just, it would keep them busy for the rest of the night, every weekend, just about, you know? So I look over those moments and I think about, you know, the consequences and a lot of people, when they experience consequences, they'll want to change. But for me, they didn't even phase me. They weren't great enough yet. And the consequences start to pile up later as we go on. Um, but when I look over my addiction, you know, I suffer from the alcoholic mentality, the disease of addiction. And so that's character defects, lying, cheating, manipulating, stealing. Those are the main characteristics of my alcoholic mentality. And that's what high school looked like for me. Um, making fake report cards so I wasn't grounded, um, calling the phone company and blocking the uh, phone number so they couldn't tell my parents I missed any classes, sneaking out all the time. Um, but I'm a soccer player and I play sports, and that was such a big theme throughout my whole life, you know, was, was always playing sports. But I look back at that moment in eighth grade when I had those kids there at my party and I wanted to be liked. And from there, I will compromise my own needs and wants and validation. Later on in my story, I talk more about selling drugs and that being part, just a brief part of it. But I never sold drugs because I wanted you to like me so much. I would give you such a good deal. I was always hustling backwards because <laughs> I wanted you to call me and like me. Yeah. You know? Well, what I'm hearing is you were definitely the life of the party, right? And I appreciate you going back and sharing that part, you know, about your parents being away and, and that being the house and, you know, everybody else gravitating towards you. So I could, I could definitely visualize that. I could see it all. And, you know, some of the ingenuity, even at a young age to figure out how to get around getting in trouble. And although you pointed out those aspects of addiction, you know, that the negative characteristics, but I would also suggest that most addicts hopefully will acknowledge that there's also, you know, part of being an addict. And I say this, I have my own um, tendencies that are a bit obsessive, compulsive, and when channeled, you know, given a positive direction for those other attributes, uh, they tend to serve us well. And it sounds like, you know, even though you are using them in a negative way, even from an early, early age, you were kind of figuring out how to, 
how to make the most of your of your talents, right? I heard the same thing because, <laughs> I mean, I don't know how old you are, but I'm assuming you're around our age. And for people listening, like, it's not easy. It was not easy back then to call the phone company and to block numbers. It's not like you just go on Google and put something in back then. I'm listening and I'm like, damn, like, he was an entrepreneur even back when he was doing things. Yeah, that- I mean, yeah. Yeah, we're talking about making fake IDs when you could take, uh, you know, masking tape, a laser printer, some nail polish remover, (laughs) slap a piece of tape over it. We're talking about going to Staples, finding report card paper, getting on, you know, the back then, the dial up and and making from scratch your own report card to reflect what it looks like posing as my dad with the phone company, all because I wanted to continue to do what I wanted to do. I wanted to be the life of the party. I wanted to play sports. Yeah, I wanted to go to college and do all that just so I could play sports, but I was more concerned about partying. I experimented with every single kind of drug you could possibly think of. Now it came time for me to graduate. I had to tell my parents I didn't have a you know 3.8 GPA, I had a 2.4, right? And now I have soccer scholarships all across the country but I don't have the grades to get into this into school. Mm. So my parents hired me an SAT tutor for three months. We study and we study and we study. And I know that I have to take this SAT test. Everything is riding on this SAT test. I, my parents go out of town. I have a party. Someone gives me some acid for a cup at the party. And I know that if I take this acid right now and I have to go take this test in the morning, I'm not going to score well. But that's the baffling part of addiction. The baffling feature is the utter inability to leave it alone, no matter how great the necessity Mm. or the wish. I could see the need in every aspect of my life. I could wish it, I could pray it, but I can't not not do it. And so naturally I took the acid right before the test. I got in there, it got weird. I didn't score very well. Mm. And I didn't get into a division one college yet. So (laughs) I I can totally relate. Uh, I took the SATs quite a few times. Um, many for much of the same reason, not being able to, you know, go home, get a good night's sleep and get my stuff together. Cause I was just same thing. Wanted to party all the time, such a mess. Yeah. Um, but it sounds like what I'm hearing is that athletics, soccer, like really helped kind of get you oh, through, for sure. but how for did that, sure. so, how did that fit you know, in when you were still doing all those other things? <sighs> Well, here's the thing, you know, I was the captain of every team I've ever been on high school, college, club soccer, traveled all across the country, Australia, overseas a bit. Um, And on the field, I'm an excellent leader. But off the field, the problem is I care more about having a good time and being the life of the party that I didn't lead very well off the field. But what I did learn is a lot of leadership skills. I learned a lot about building a team. What makes a leader is how many leaders you can turn out. And that's what my mission is today. Um, at the previous company, the, the reentry company that we met through that has now 300 clients that we built in the last six months, 500 coming over the next two years. Um, you know, it, it's that perseverance, it's that leadership, it's that teamwork, it's the dedication, it's the camaraderie, it's all the things that I learned on the soccer field. Now I'm able to carry those in my relationships, professionally, in all the things. You know, um, when, after I ended up graduating from high school, I took a soccer scholarship to Phoenix College, right? And um, right before I uh, started, I got pulled over and I had some weed on me and I had a gun because naturally, remember, I'm from like the upper middle class, but I roll around with a gun, a drug dealer, and I bump uh, Biggie Smalls all day long in my Toyota Camry (laughs) because I'm so hood. You know what I mean? Like, I'm just gangster. 
right? And I ended up getting pulled over and I catch my first case and I got released and I got put on probation. Shortly after that, I got an aggravated extreme DUI. I hit a stop sign, a light pole, and a house. I blew a point two nine, um, and that was a Wednesday morning. Almost and, killed a family. And just so when I woke up and yeah, go ahead. yeah. For anybody, what's the legal limit? Point zero zero eight or something. Point zero zero eight, and you had a two what? Point two eight. Yeah, Oof. yeah. It was, yeah, it was a wild Tuesday night, you know, and. Uh, I woke up when my vehicle went through their house and I ended up in their pool in their backyard. Ooh, oh um, my God. And when I woke up in the hospital, you know, I, I was cuffed to the bed. My parents were there. They're always there. My dad looks at my mom. He's alive. Let's go. I look, the cop comes in, uncuffs me, and I look at the ticket, and the ticket is all uh, written out in my fake ID's name, Matt McCarty. I owe that dude an amends. If I ever run into him, I owe that wow. guy an amends. But that DUI did catch up with me later on down the road. So now I start to play soccer at Phoenix College. I'm the captain of the team, but off the field, I'm an idiot. I take the, the whole team. I get the captain's armband. Here's a little snapshot of that. I get the captain's armband. I'm a freshman, right? Pretty big deal. I decide I'm going to take a team-building trip to Crown King, Arizona. We're going to go camping. We're going to get to know each other. We're going to build camaraderie. The best way I know how to do that, Adam, maybe, maybe you know the same way, take mushrooms. That's what I know. <laughs> and we lose two players in the forest to Crown King for oh. two days. We had to call the off-duty firefighters, our coach, the parents, everything. Oh, and uh, we found them. They were alive. Um, but that's just, you know, one of the many examples. But on the field, um, I did my thing. That's the truth. Wait, I have a question. So when you were in the hospital and Matt McCarty got the tickets, did your parents keep their mouth shut? Did they know this? Yeah, they. well, um, I don't think they knew. They oh, okay. didn't know about it, um, but they would have kept their mouth shut. They're old school Italians. Come yeah, on, yeah, yeah. You know no, I know exactly. <laughs> it, it's why I have so many questions for you. I don't want to interrupt your story, but there's so many similarities between the old school Italians and how we were all raised. So I think I'm jumping ahead a little bit, but I have to ask this question because it's the theme throughout everything that you've said so far has been people pleasing and wanting people to like you. I'm very similar. And I think it does have something to do with how we were raised, which we'll put that aside for a second. But to me, from what I'm hearing so far is that that was like the greatest addiction behind the drugs and the alcohol. So my question is like, once you get sober, right? And again, I'm skipping ahead and I don't want to skip all of these stories, but you can get rid of the drugs and the alcohol and, and be sober from that. But like, how do you heal the other addiction, which is being addicted to people liking you and people pleasing all the time? Yeah. Um, you know, I think it's important that that connection for me and my path to recovery, a connection to God, a higher power, that's that personal connection that no matter what I take with me, I have to nurture it, maintain it, prayer, meditation, but also that connection is also maintained through experience in life, being present in the relationships, playing sports, coaching soccer like I do today and my daughter, and having those moments that make me feel good through a connection to something greater than myself. So that gives me that same fulfilling reward. Sometimes I have to love people from a distance, and sometimes I have to remind myself that I'm still people-pleasing at times. It's okay to say no. I don't have to take on every sponsee in the world when I don't have any time to have more than one. You know, so it's it's tough. I still suffer from it. Yeah, me too. That's why I asked the question. <laughs> and we're, I know what you're getting at with the Italian thing, because I'm a mama's boy. I always want to please mom. Right. And mom always had greater things for me. And I heard the word potential quite often, you know, and, and all these times, you know, I things would look great from the outside. 
I'm the captain of the soccer team. I have good grades now. I'm getting ready to graduate. Shortly before I graduate from Phoenix College, I decide I'm going to take a trip uh, to spring break, and I'm on probation for the weed and the gun and all the things. And my PO, my probation officer, tells me I can't go. I'm like, he'll never remember. I go to Miami. He remembers. Um, he calls me, says, you got a report tomorrow or I'm going to violate you. So when I came back and I graduated from Phoenix College, I was, I was also now on a violation of probation. And I had that aggravated DUI just out there as well. You know, so now I have soccer scholarships all across the country. But the problem is when they want to show you how good the school is, they want to throw you a party. Well, I've always been a blackout drinker, fight you, pee in the corner, think I'm in the bathroom. You know what I mean? Like, get lost, call all the women in my phone and leave a weird-ass voice message. Like, you know what I mean? Like, I, you know. Yep. Heroin killed my alcoholism. I'm mm. kidding. I'm kidding. But I just couldn't afford to do anything else. <laughs> Wow. But um, so now I'm on a violation. I end up yep. graduating and now I got soccer scholarships. But when they fly me out there or I fly or I go out there for these schools, I get blacked out drunk. I find a rave. I'm asking for cocaine. I'm where the girl's house at. I don't even show up to the games. I do. I'm still intoxicated and I play well. But the truth is, coaches didn't really want to take a chance on me. You know, um, I was a mess. Mm, you know, wow. so I come back and I there was a coach here, Grand Canyon University. I was going to sign a soccer scholarship. So I get my poor, sweet five foot nothing Italian mom. And I tell her, hey, mom, you're going to be so proud of me. You're going to come with me. I'm going to sign the soccer scholarship. And I get there and he says, Mrs. and Sarah, I'm glad you're here. I'm not here to offer your son a scholarship. I actually have a treatment center out front. He was at a soccer party last weekend selling cocaine and <gasps> weed and didn't realize the assistant coach was there. You know, wow. I what did your mom do? She cried oh, she, oh, again, cried, yeah. you know, that's what makes today so special. Having the ability to contribute to my mom's life. You know, mm. I'm sweating over here because I'm getting fired up and be foaming at the mouth like a pit bull in a minute. <laughs> but, you know, like I get to contribute to their life today. And yeah. that's so important, you know, to me, you know, so I end up taking a soccer scholarship in California. Coach takes a chance on me. I get hurt. And I get put on prescription pain medication. Mm. And that's what starts the new journey, you what, know. What, and uh, what kind of injury was it? I had an ACL injury. Oof. Yep. Yep. And then about maybe uh, 30 days after the surgery, I was in Crown King camping at that same camp spot. I lost those two players of mine. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I tried to jump over the campfire with my hurt knee, and I jumped into the campfire, <gasps> and I burnt all the skin off my arm. Oh, my God. And I had to be flown to the burn clinic. And uh, they gave me prescription pain medication at the same time um, oh. for that as well. Oof. So I was double dipping. <sighs> So, and, and that's where things, <laughs> that's where things took a turn for even worse, yeah, I mean, presumably. And so here's the thing. And the reason why I told you lie, cheat, manipulate, steal, like that's my addiction right there. Well, the only job I've ever had previous to what I do today in behavioral health and reentry, I was a telemarketer, bro. Like that's the job. Lie, cheat, steal. Like that's what we did <laughs> for work. You know, so when I start to look at these character defects for me, my path of recovery, I'm a 12 step guy. When I look at step six and having the willingness to let go of these character defects, it's extremely hard because for 20 plus years, those character defects were assets to my addiction. Sure. Now I have to be honest and all these things and it, and it makes it difficult, you know?
So tell us where the where does the telemarketing come in and and well the telemarketing I you know I'm a quick talker right and it was a job where you could party and work mm. you know like we got we smoke weed at our desk you know and I learned telemarketing I worked at a ton of different places um, I've had three different telemarketing companies. Um, when I came back after, so what ends up happening is I get hurt, I burn my arm, I come back to Tempe, I'm going to go to ASU, I'm going to finish my degree, uh, I end up getting into the telemarketing business in the alarm company with ADT, I was a licensed pro dealer for ADT, and so I started selling alarm systems and never finished my degree, right? Um, now I'm on prescription pain medication, and I'm eating at this point about 100 Percocets a day. Oh, fives, wow. tens, 7.5s. I'm eating 30 in the morning at lunch, no water, straight chewing them up like Skittles, wow. you know? And so I have my own telemarketing company. So I made my own job applications. And on the um, application, I put an extra question. Are you on any prescription medication? Check yes or no. Right. So they're like, yeah. I'm like, what do you got? What do you get? <laughs> you know, I pull the x-ray out of my desk, my knee, you know how the doctors are. I'll buy all of them. Right. Wow. And so now this, you this know, was I'm, this was part of your interview process. This part of my interview process, yeah. Wow. But once again, like, okay, obviously not the right thing to do. But what an entrepreneur! Like to think of these <laughs> things. I'm not saying it's right, but like the thought. Like this is before TikTok, where people tell you what to do. This is when you had to actually think and yeah. do this on your own. Wow! It just speaks to the intelligence. And so my wife, before we, we jumped on the podcast, she's like, you know, all these traits you've had through everything that you've done now today, you get to utilize them. It's such a grand yeah. way to help so many people. It's just, it's amazing to see, you know, we've been married for 14 years. Um, she's been through so much with me and, you know, the life we get to share today is, is just, it's, it's crazy. So, well, obviously, and we very much want to hear about that aspect as well, because like, at what point does she come in and how, how much of the craziness has she gotten oh, to God. see or so, experience? Yeah, I'll speed it up just a little bit here because there's a lot. But it, what ends up happening is um, I have a telemarketing company. I have about 40 employees. We're doing alarm systems. I'm eating as many pills as I could eat. Someone turns me on to 80 milligram Oxycontins because it's going to be cheaper, right? And it's cheaper for like three days. And I end up meeting this guy and he, he has the cheapest ones in town. And finally, I ask him how, you know, and he's like, let me show you. He pulls out this pad. He takes a pen, he writes a script out, he goes into Fry's Pharmacy, we smoke a joint together in the parking lot, he comes back out, and he's got 180 milligram Oxycons for $116. And I said, hold up, bro. <laughs> so what ends up happening is I end up impersonating 16 doctors over the next two-year period, close my company down. I had every doctor's signature and DEA number in Arizona. I can talk about it today because I've already been charged for it. Um, and I went on for the next, you know, two years, just selling scripts and impersonating doctors, you know, wow. and just traveling and partying. And then I'm Italian. Italy wins the world cup in 2006. I'm a soccer guy. Uh, it's the greatest day in the world. I tell all my friends, I'll be right back. I'm going to go fill a script. And I didn't follow in my rules and I got arrested. And when I got arrested, I had seven scripts in my wallet already written out. Plus, I'm on the violation of probation. Plus, I have that aggravated extreme DUI out there. So now I'm going to jail. Yeah. At, you know? at, at that point, it, it got real very quick. So they, they take you in at that point. And do, yeah. you, do you realize yeah, so they, like how serious it is at this point? Yeah, I realized that I don't have a bond. And then over the next six month period while I'm in jail, I get page two, which means you got another case. You have to go all the way back to the court process. 
Um, I started out with six counts of forgery and I ended with 283 counts of forgery. And those were all the prescriptions I wrote in my own name because I'm super smart. I'm slick. So, (laughs) and so there was, this was back in 2002, three and four, right? So I'm 41. Um, and so when the doctor back then, the pharmacies weren't linked, so they wouldn't know that I was at three different fries pharmacies today. So there was a guy, a detective that was going around every pharmacy. Have you filled any scripts for this name? If so, I would catch new cases. So finally, um, when it was all said and done after sitting in County jail, I ended up getting a three and a half year prison sentence. And I went to prison in 2006. Um, I went to Douglas. I did all my time out there. I found this thing, uh, these things called push-ups. I don't know if you've heard of them. I thought that if I just did push-ups and was a solid wood, another story, another time, that's what they call the white boys. I'm Italian. It's confusing. Um, <laughs> but I had hopes and dreams when I got out, but I didn't change a damn thing, you yeah. know, and yeah. may, you know what I mean? So, so t- tell me about how that was <laughs> that time when you went in like you go in, obviously, you were doing massive amounts of opioids at this time. Like, oh my God, dude, I was, I mean, by this time, I had been through county jail enough to tell them that I do, I drink a 20 pack of bottles and I'm on Xanax. So this way they give me a benzo taper. So it helps a little bit, but I'll tell you about uh, withdrawal. It's 80-20 in my opinion. It's 80% mental and 20% uh, physical. I've tried to detox on the streets a million times. And when I know that I can get it, dude, I'm losing my damn mind. But when I'm in jail, I'm in a cell, dude, I know I'm not getting it. It's not that bad. It's not as bad in my opinion. I've been through a lot of times. But I end up catching him, you know, I, you know, I get back in, I start to feel again, I start to get some weight, I start to sleep, I start to eat, but it takes a very long time. We're talking about hallucinations for 30 days, not being able to keep any food down, um, you know, all the things. Going number four, you know what that is? Another show, another time is what that is. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's, you know, no, it's important, man, because, you know, yesterday, a conversation that we had on here a lot of times when we start talking about prison, not all of our audience is going to understand. So I appreciate you taking the time to kind of walk through yeah. what that detox is like. And, you know, for most people, they only know what they see on TV. And right. I've, I've seen some pretty gruesome withdrawals, you know, the, the after effects of a cell when somebody's been in there detoxing and they've just locked themselves in there for a week and listen, like you got to go in there with hazmat suit to try and clean that yeah. thing out. And it's just, it's rough. Like, yeah. Smell like a J John at Woodstock. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like yeah. it's bad, you know? Um, and you know, I, I get out after doing that time. I'm on probation. Um, I'm doing good. I end up, uh, some friends with some family back East in New York ended up having a job for me. When I got out, I started doing uh, door-to-door sales for auto glass. I was running an 80 person door team. And that's where I met my wife in 2009. When I got out of prison, I'm making good money. Things are great. I'm doing everything I'm supposed to do. I, you know, I get the Mercedes, I buy the condo, I put the money in the bank and then I get off probation. Right. 
And I'll tell you this, the big book tells me this. It says that we can fall victim to a belief, which practically every alcoholic has, that his long period of sobriety and self-discipline qualifies him to drink like other men. I thought because at this point now, with the prison sentence and being on probation four and a half years, that I could drink normally. We went to Vegas for one night, me and my best friend, who, shout out Baker, who now has 12 years of recovery. Um, but we weren't sober. We went to Vegas, Halloween. He was dressed up as Dog the Bounty Hunter, and I was dressed up as the ShamWow guy. Um, we were there for 24 hours. I woke up, blacked out like the hangover, pissed myself. Uh, baby Carlos wasn't there, and Mike Tyson's Tiger wasn't involved. But I'll tell you what, the same old thing was there, just like it was in college, just mm -hmm. like it was in high school, just like that. He was doing something in the bathroom for that 24-hour period, and finally I said, hey, whatever you got, break it out. And he gave me an 80-milligram Oxycontin, and there it was. But I'm making good money so I can conceal it for a period of time. I drive a Mercedes. But the problem is I got no insurance. The tags are expired. I put a dollar fourteen in the gas tank three times a day, but I get car washes three times a week, hands down. You know, look at me. I look good, right? You know? Was your were you married at that point or you were with your wife? No, dating so wife? we started we you know, we had met, um, we started dating during that period of time and I had relapsed and she, you know, she was a normie to the fullest. When I say that, um, she doesn't experience craving like I do. Um, when my one, my, here's an example. When my wife drinks a glass of wine, she's tired. She wants KFC. And if she's really feeling frisky, she'll smoke a cigar like straight up. <laughs> okay. And then she ran into me and she's finding foil and fuck torches and, and, and pipes and, yeah. you know, bones. that's why I asked. Yeah, I was wondering if you were going, able to hide what it from is her. This? Yeah. And I'm like, I, that's all stuff I use to smoke weed or spice. She'd be like, what do you want me to do with it? I'm like, let me see it. Keep it. Throw it away. You know, like she had no clue, you know? Oh. So um, when did she find out? how bad it so, was yeah so you know she starts to notice some things right because now we you know we end up moving in together my addiction is getting worse oxycontins are off the market now so now i'm doing heroin because it's the next thing i could afford um making 100 grand a year but i'm broke all the time we live together so she's starting to notice that i'm losing a little bit of weight um i'm in the bathroom a lot when i come out of there she used to say it smells like burnt barbecue sauce i got the faucet on the shower on i'm double clutching flushing the toilet so she can't hear the lighter you know she's starting to suspect all these things and finally what ends up happening is i can't lie about anything anymore the cat's out the bag finally i get honest with her and she takes me to uh detox and i go to community bridges um and i try to get sober you know and i went through community bridges i did the seven day detox i went to crossroads arcadia from there which I now do my, all my service work at Crossroads. I, I've been doing it three years now since I came home. Every Saturday and Sunday at 7 p.m., I bring big book studies to the guys. You know, Very um, nice, very nice. Yeah, and so I end up going there, right? My wife's five months pregnant. By this time, we have nothing. Like, I have drained everything to the point where we lose our house, we lose everything. She moves in with her parents five months pregnant. I'm in a Crossroads. Mm -hmm. um, after 16 days, they let me get a job. We got nothing. Like she's living with her mom, right? And so they let me get a job after 16 days. I walk to the closest telemarketing company. My first week there, I make a $2,000 check and I deuces. I leave Crossroads. I get us an apartment and I stay sober for a period of time, right? Like I have the baby, you know, my beautiful, my 12-year-old now, um, Isabella. And, and now I have a two-year-old baby girl as well, Gabriella. And um, 
you know, things are good. I started another telemarketing company. I'm doing the home-based businesses, Shady, another story, another time. Um, <laughs> you know, and I have this bright idea that I know why all my telemarketers, I got about 40 of them again. I say, I know why you guys are late. You wake up dope sick and you got to go boost and fence and steal and, and get cashed out and call the dope man. That's why everybody shows up three hours late. So this is what we're going to do. You're going to bring me the stolen property. I'm going to, I'm going to cash you out. And then call the dope man, have him meet you in the parking lot. I'll give you a 15 minute break when he gets here, but you got to be on time at 8 a.m. Right. <laughs> and so I start buying and stolen property. Right. And um, <laughs> long story short, I end up buying some computers off an undercover officer. And one day I come home and I check the mail like I do every day. And I look and I have a grand jury indictment for a class two felony and my heart sinks. Like I could still feel that feeling of what I could see the sentencing chart in my head. I've already got seven felony convictions. I got a class two felony. Like five years is is a blessing at this point, you know? And I don't even know how to tell my wife. Oh God. Does she have any idea what's going on at this point that you're you're back in the mix? Or is she so like I'm sober at from... this period of time? So okay. I've, now I've been sober um, from from Arcadia. So about a year and a half now, I was sober at this point, right? And she's asking me, she could tell, like, I'm not eating, I'm not sleeping. She's like, are you okay? And I'm like, I'm just so stressed. Um, and I'm going to work every day. I don't even have the heart to run my business, you know? And so I'm just researching my case, trying to figure out, you know, but I hadn't worked a program of recovery. So all I know is identify a problem in my life contribute to the problem, add to the problem, right? Mm -hmm. Recovery teaches me, identify a problem. It's my job to get to the solution, right? But I don't have recovery. So what do I do? Relapse on heroin, pick up a new case, find myself sitting in Fourth Avenue jail, just violated uh, class two felony OR, uh, pre-trial, I had a, a ankle bracelet on, and I was on a $35,000 cash only bond for the third case I was released on. And then I caught a heroin possession and I found myself sitting in Fourth Avenue jail in 2014. Damn. Yeah. And she stayed with you through this? She did. Wow. And, you know, um, Again, over that period of time when I had relapsed after, you know, getting the, the um, case in the mail, you know, she thinks there's 50 grand in the bank and she's got to borrow $20 to put money on the phone when I'm, you know, downstairs, you know, in, in Fourth Avenue jail trying to make a, a Mayday SOS phone call, you know, and she's like, I'm going to give you one. Tell me everything you've lied to me about. And if you if you tell me everything now, I'm going to stay with you, you know, and and my wife went on. And so what ends up happening, long story short, is they hit me with the repeat offender program. It's a mandatory aggravated sentence. I spend the next year fighting this case in Fourth Avenue jail. I, I get to prison. I think I'm a tough guy, but I can't fight. So I get beat up all the time. So I try to beat up two guys. They should have got the assault charges. I got them and I ended up getting maxed out. So I spent my time getting an hour out for a year in max custody fighting this case. Um, my wife would come to see me non-contact. My daughter isn't even two years old yet. Um, and I'm facing 10 to 25 years all day long. So real uh, quick, I, that, that, that one year, when you say non-contact, what do those visits look like? Yeah, so at this point, and in the max custody jail, we're all um, video visits. Oh. You know? So, so it's just video visits. I didn't see her and touch her for almost two years. Oh that God, that's a long you time. Know? And and so, how do you keep that relationship under those circumstances? How do you how do you keep things going? Communication, man, and, mm -hmm. and finding ways to connect and, and always focusing on the good times that we had and 
coming together to what the future is going to look like. You know, she supported me through everything. Um, and today our life is getting to share it together. It, it's unreal. You know, she picked me up after, you know, seven years, you know, cause what ends up happening is I end up getting eight year prison sentence when it's all said and done. I go to prison in 2014. Um, I was on a high custody yard. So it was real to me. I didn't use during that period of time. Um, I find my wife started driving to Tucson every weekend to see me. It's a two hour drive. She would come every other weekend. I got moved to Florence um, and she was, which is a closer drive. She was coming every weekend, sometimes with my daughter, sometimes with not so we could have our own time. And I mean, we're writing letters. We're, you know, you know, reading books together. Um, we, we did, we did every single kind of question worksheet you can think of. She made me a newsletter, Adam Rowe, every week for almost two years was a new edition. It was called the Insera Insider. And it would have a snapshot at my daughter. It would have a snapshot at, you know, the things that she was doing that would keep me up to speed in her life to the point that my daughter always knew who I was through the whole entire time, you know, and, and those are the things that I will always cherish and never forget, you know? What a beautiful woman, like you're talking and I'm fighting back tears yeah. because our quote yeah. non-contact was sitting across from each other and not being allowed to touch, which I want to say was terrible, but we got to see each other face to face. And mm. the fact that, <clears throat> excuse me, that you guys were able to get through that is just beautiful. What a beautiful woman. What a beautiful oh, relationship. I mean, and, and so, you know, finally what ends up happening, you know, is I end up losing, I, we end up losing our visits because <gasps> I can't keep my hands to myself. I tell everyone that I was doing push-ups again and she couldn't keep her hands to herself, but it was. Uh-oh, we just lost by. Hang on one sec. Yeah, for some reason we lost volume here. Can you hear us? Okay, we lost your audio. Hold on one sec. Can you hear me? Now there we, we can. Go. Yep. yep. Okay. Okay, so you were doing push-ups and you blamed her for doing yeah. the push-ups, but that's the last <laughs> thing we heard. Okay, yeah, yeah. So, so what ends up happening is I end up losing our visits because, like I was saying, I tell everyone that I was doing push-ups and she couldn't keep her hands off of me. And so we lost our visits, but it was the other way around. I couldn't keep my hands off of her. I had a bunch of warnings. They hit me with a class A ticket. And that meant now no phones for six months, then six months behind the glass visits. Oh. So we're sitting in between glass and yeah. then uh, or six months, no visits, and then six months behind the glass. How, okay. So I have to ask like how serious was the touching? Because like there was a point where I touched Adam's leg too high. It was, it was literally like mid thigh. Well, like, was it that what, or what they could prove, what they could prove. Was me. <laughs> <laughs> you've okay. been at visitation, you know what time it is. I understand. <laughs> I completely understand. I was just wondering yeah. if it was bogus. Yeah. Yeah. No, nah, I mean, it, it was, bogus. Listen, I mean, yeah, it was. And you know, when you come in there and you have a, a family and you have some things, sometimes you can give off the wrong impression at times and, you know, and, and it is what it is. Right. Um, but again, I don't have recovery. So now there's a problem in my life. The problem is I can't see my wife mm. and that's what I'm living for those visits. Mm. So now what do I do? Problem add to the problem. So now I relapse in prison. And now I go on this next year period. I got a friend that get a friend that gets out, leaves me a cell phone, tells me to call him the next day. 
and he starts making drops on the prison yard for me. So now I go on the next year period where I become the dope man on the prison yard. I'm getting ounces of heroin sent into the prison um, three times a week. And just like everything in life, it goes so good till it goes so bad. The guy that was doing the drops for me, he gets arrested. Mm -hmm. um, and now I have the worst habit that I've ever had in prison. And it's, you know, a thousand times more expensive now. And I don't got it like that, you know? So... And now I, you know, I'm running up debts. I'm getting in high speed foot chases with the cops, but I'm passing all my UAs because I have a catheter, another show, another time. Right. <laughs> and I'm passing all these UAs. They can't figure it out. So finally they get sick of me. And what they did when they got sick of, of you in Florence, they would send you to Kingman, Arizona. Right. So I get to Kingman, Arizona. I'm strung out. I'm 105 pounds. Um, I, you know, I got a, I got a poop of softball. Sorry. It's the truth. Right. Um, you know, uh, I, I, you know, weeks, you know, and are you there? Oh, yep. We, uh, you froze up there for a minute. I think it's still frozen. Yeah. You're still frozen on them. Uh Oh, did I we think, lose? Uh, yeah. I think the, oh, oh now there you're you back. go. Oh man, this is bummer. I have to edit this out. Yeah, no worries. We'll edit it out. All good. Am I back? You're back. You are You're back. Yep. So I don't know what the problem is. You had, you had gotten to Kingman. Yeah, and so I get to Kingman, right? And and they tell me you're new to this yard, right? So that means you're. They call it blocks. That means no drug transactions, no moves. You can't get on the cell phone. For 30 days, we want to see how you act, right? And I look at him and I'm who, like, dude, I'm strung out. Who's, right? who, who's telling you this? Just to clarify, who's telling another you this? Another inmate. Yeah, another inmate. That's the head of the white boys, okay. you know? And yep. he's telling me, look, you can't do X, Y, and Z. We're going to keep an eye on you, right? And I'm telling him, look, I'm strung out. I heard that heroin was cheaper here. So where's the cell phone at? Like, And he looked at me in my eyes and he's like, you're going to have a really hard time here. And, and, you know, I could laugh about it today, but I got a scar above my eye from that ass whooping I took that day. Uh, my two front teeth are still sensitive to hot and cold from having to pull them forward. I thought I was going to lose them almost going on six years later. Um, you know, I, I got beat up about seven. I was penciling ass whoopings right into my day. I'm going to wake <laughs> up, get beat up. Uh, then I'm going to go try to get high. Then I'm going to dodge the yard until, you know, head count at 8 p.m. And then uh, when everyone goes to sleep, I'm going to get high because I'm not supposed to be. And then what would happen is I would smoke spice and I would straight wig out and start screaming in the middle of the three o'clock in the morning in front of 100 people. Right. You know, like yeah. things like that. I became the guy I used to talk shit about, right? And finally, I end up calling out that head of the building who kept sending these dudes in to beat me up for every little thing that I did wrong. Um, I called him out and told him to handle his business like a man, and he did, and he got me pretty good. And I left blood on the floor, and the cops saw it when they did their walk, and they locked the pod down, and they when they when they see blood, they do knuckle body checks. So they strip you down to your boxers, and they look at your hands and your body, and you spin around to see if you've been in any altercations. Well, they looked at me, and I've been in 17 fights, and I was 0-17. So he's like, oh, shit, and cuffed me up, took me to the hole. You know, and anytime I speak, whether it's, you know, for AA, whether it's at corporate events, whether it's on my podcast, whatever it looks like, this is the gift of pain and desperation right here. And so I end up um, 
going to the hole. I have to take a UA. I try to finesse the UA by cheating it. Doesn't work. Now I fail a UA. So now I lose my visits for another year. So when, mm. when we're talking about maintaining that connection, there was a two-year period of time where I saw my wife twice and spoke to her other than three-way calls and an occasional phone call, maybe a handful of times. And it was all letters, God. you know? So, um, you know, and so now I'm in the hole, right? And how, how's, really how's she dealing with this? How did she deal with the separation? What, what was in those letters? Did she, Man, and dude. also, did she know that you were using at this point again? So I'm lying to her. She could hear it. I'm asking her for money. You know, she, she comes to visit when she could see me or, you know, non-contact and I'm 30 pounds lighter, you know, and she's going, you're not eating any of the food that I'm sending you, you know? Um, and then I end up getting that dirty away and I get, I know that my phones are going to be off for a year and, and I know this and I know I can get one 10 minute phone call and I have to get it before Sunday night at 10 o'clock. I'm in the hole. It's extremely hard by myself, single man mm -hmm. self. And I'm banging on the door every time a cop does a walk every 15 minutes, phone call, phone call, phone call. A week goes by finally 10 PM that Sunday night. And I didn't get that phone call. I straight lost my mind. I freaked out. I became the dude who shits, spits, kicks the door, flood, not the shit part. I take that back. <laughs> um, <laughs> but I flooded the cell. I, you know, yep. I banged on the door. I screamed. The cops came, but they didn't bring the, the phone. They brought the cell extract team mm -hmm. and they extracted me out of that cell and they put me in a restraint chair. And I remember sitting there with a spit mask on and a restraint chair and a porter closet, basically like the electrical chair with, with, uh, um, uh, belts around it to oh, hold God. you down because that's how insane I became. And I sat there for hours and I cried in that closet. And I just thought about what my life had become. Finally, they dumped me on the ground back into that cell. And I laid there on the ground and I had some really big realizations. The first one is love is an action word. I used to tell my mm. wife, Hey babe, I need you to send me a Western union. I need a food box. Um, bring some quarters to visit. I love you. And she'd be like, shut up. You don't love me. And I couldn't believe she had the audacity to even say that to me. But love is an actual word. I love my wife, but I'm bleeding her dry. I love my daughter, but I haven't seen her in two years because I want to get high on the yard, sell drugs and be liked and, and still live that lifestyle. But I love you. I did the same thing to every family member in my life. Love is an action word. And my actions at that moment reflected that I hated those people in my life. And in that moment, it became unacceptable to me. I also had another realization that I became the dude I used to talk shit about. And that became unacceptable. I had three years left on my prison sentence. I, my wife served me divorce papers. Um, my parents blocked the phone number, so I couldn't even call from the prison anymore. I didn't have a friend in the world. I'm in a hole in Kingman, Arizona, and I sat there for six months doing push-ups. I could only hear my neighbor's TV, and he had TBN on, Christian music. And I would listen, I would pray, and I would cry, and I had the willingness, and I had that gift of pain and desperation. And when it, when it was time for me to get transferred, by the grace of God, they sent me back to Florence North unit where I was the dope man before I left. And when I got there, some really big things happened to me. Um, a lot of the guys that I was getting high with had found recovery. And there was one guy in particular, Josh S. I had owed him some money before they moved me. And I just wanted to apologize to him, you know, and, and he said, you want to make it right? Come to a meeting. And I walked into that 12 step meeting at Florence North unit, about 10 inmates in that meeting and three outside volunteers. And, and I, when I looked in there, I seen a bunch of people that I knew were just as bad as me. And they were visual proof. The big book talks about it from a trembling, despairing, nervous wreck emerged a man brimming over with self-reliance and contentment. I knew these dudes were as bad as me. 
And now I barely recognize them, the look in their eye, how high they hold their head, the tone of their voice. I knew that if they can do it too, that I could do it. And I got on my feet moving from that day and my life has changed. That was February 4th of 2018. Wow. How much time did you have left inside? I had three years left at that point, right? And so now I get a sponsor and I immediately get a sponsor after that meeting. I start working the steps, right? Um, I start to understand the mental obsession, the physical allergy. I start to understand this higher power thing in the application process, how to use this power in my life by coupling my actions with the will of this power, which is positivity, gratitude, selflessness, character assets. That's God. Let my actions reflect it to the best of my abilities each day. And I'm making a decision in step three. I'm a 12-step guy. A decision in step three to let my actions reflect it. The fourth step gave me the ability to look at resentments, personal relationships, to understand why I kept using drugs and alcohol, despite all the evidence in my life showing me that, dude, this ain't going to work out well for you. You cannot use drugs and alcohol without consequences, player. You need to stop. But I couldn't get there yet, you know? Um And I got honest in the fifth step and I had this complete psychic change. So now over the next three year period, um, I began to teach the substance abuse moderate treatment drug class. I went on to teach it from start to finish. It was a six month class. I worked with over 4,000 inmates over the next three years. I went on to sponsor the whole yard, over a hundred men at that project where Adam and I met at New Life Wellness. Right now, there's 25 guys that are peer supports that I sponsored in prison. I looked them in the eye and I told them, when we get out, we're gonna help each other. We're gonna do it together. And we've been doing it now and they're all over there. There's 300 reentry clients there right now with those same guys I sponsored back in 2019. I only played a small part in that. You know, it's just the the power in it, you know? Um, That's amazing. The same cops that sent me to Kingman uh, you know, allow me to speak to every in, uh, newcomer at orientation and offer the hand of recovery to them. You know, um, it's a miracle, you know, and I got released March 19th, 2021 after doing seven years on an eight year prison sentence. Whew. Come, come back to that real quick, because I understand the significance of a admissions and orientation critical time when you come into a facility, right? Like, like you said, you know, when you hit the yard, there's certain rules, there's, you know, people want to, you know, put you on whatever time they're on. And it sounds like you were offering them chance to do things a little bit differently. What did that look like? Yeah. And so I would get up there and, and Adam, what it looked like is a Super Bowl halftime speech is what it looked like, but <laughs> get busy living or get busy dying. Who's coming with me? You know, but the truth is it's like, look guys, when you walk out this orientation, you got two choices, right? Or three choices. Either you're going to mind your own business. You're going to do your time. You're going to take advantage of some programming or keep your head down or you're going to jump into recovery, make the changes necessary in your life. I'm offering you 12-step meetings. These are when they are. I'll pick you up for the meeting tonight. I'm offering you the ability to come hang out in our substance abuse room, which was my office, um, and be a part of the moderate treatment class. And also your third option is you can immediately jump right back into the drug game because anywhere I went in this state in seven years, it didn't matter from minimum custody to the whole. I could get any drug I wanted to get at any point in time if I had the money. Yeah. And that's the truth, you know? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So. So what was 
your plan for when you got out and did you, did it actually happen or did something different happen when you got out? Oh man, dude. So I wanted to start a recovery podcast. I wrote the vision statement. I mapped it out today. We're, you know, three years deep into it in 30 countries all over the place, have sponsors, powerless to powerful podcasts. I wanted to coach soccer today. I'm coaching my 12, my now 12 year old daughter. Mm -hmm. Um, They trust me with 17 felony convictions to coach uh, 12, 12 year old girls. That's a miracle. I wanted to have another baby. I have my two year old now. Um, I wanted to work in recovery. I started working in recovery. As soon as I got out, I got a fingerprint clearance card signed off by the governor. (laughs) I mean, that's a miracle. Um, you know, all the professional and financial successes and all those things were there, you know, because really what it was is my whole life, I was always trying to weather storms, you know, and if I just can get off probation, if I can get off parole, if my mom will let, you know, let me back in, if I can get off, you know, if I can weather the storm, things will get better. But what recovery's taught me is it's not about weathering storms. It's about learning how to dance in the rain. Um, and recovery taught me how to dance. Life still happens, but today I get to live in the solution and it's my job to get there as quick as I can. I love that. And a lot of our listeners are through Strong Prison Wives and Families, a nonprofit I started when Adam was on the inside. How did you? Re- oh my God, you got to meet my wife. She was on the uh, the Arizona Friends, about a Tucson. She spoke to senators. She was at all the rallies. She she lobbied for Senate bills. I can't I wait it. to, I mean, just from the stories that you've told, I love her already. I can't wait to meet her. Um, And just the fact that she held it down and you know, played mommy and played mommy and daddy for so many years. Mm-hmm. And I think our listeners can learn so much from this. How did you rebuild that relationship with your daughter when you got out? Cause it sounds like you're close today for coaching soccer and all of that. Oh yeah. You know, and so my wife, she did such a good job, even when I didn't see them, the, my daughter for two years, you know, every present that Amazon delivered came from dad, every Aww. new backpack for school came from dad. She thought I paid for everything. You know, my wife, when she picked me up after that time, she had her good fellows moment you know she was sitting on the hood of the car but the crazy thing was when i sat in that car it felt like i didn't leave Mm. and that's a testament to our connection the work that we put in and those three years of recovery that i had under my belt because i really focused on healthy relationships and it's based off interdependency which is five characteristics friendships sexual relationships wife all the relationships it's based off joint action shared decisions genuine concern for one another honesty and open communication. I try to bring that across the board and everything that I do today and recovery also taught me that, you know, love that, love love interdependence. But it was not easy. We've had more struggles with me being out sober. And now I want to speak all over. I want to start all these businesses. I want to do X, Y, and Z. And she's going, well, what about me? You know, (laughs) I'm here. I waited for you. Well, she, she definitely earned in the words of my girlfriend, Joe, you're supposed to give her piggybacks and bring her into the kitchen and feed her pancakes every day for the rest of her life for what she did. And I do, you know, and, oh. I, and I really do. It, it, it's uh, man. Um, she is everything to me. I couldn't mm. have got through this time without her. Uh, I really, truly believe that, you know, and, you know, we, we, I, I have to want to change for me, but the motivating factors in my life are my wife, my kids, right? Like that is the motivating yeah. factors that help me get my feet moving a little bit quicker every day. You know, so I started working in behavioral health a week after doing an eight year prison sentence. I started working at Sanctuary Recovery Centers. I met the owner of Sanctuary when he came inside the prison and I was hosting a recovery event. I did a comedy show. I I did a roast. 
and he was our guest speaker. Fast forward two years, I got out. He saw me on social media and he offered me a job. And within 10 days of being out, I was working at Sanctuary. I started out as an overnight BHT and a weekend BHT. I learned the business, became the director of operations, worked on licensing, started my own license or uh, consulting company, Streamline Consulting. Um, reconnected with an old friend right now, Desert Recovery Centers. We have two 7,000 square foot homes. They are the nicest recovery homes that you have possibly seen. Go to my social media, check it out. Desert Recovery Centers, we're opening February 1st. Um, I mean, that's getting ready to open. Uh, through my consulting company, I had the privilege of um, meeting Adam and, and everything that he does for his cause. And we teamed up together to be able to get insurance and Affordable Care Act policies to all the reentry men and women, just like he and I, who needed that support. They didn't have an Ashley. They didn't have a road right? They needed that continued support um, when they got out. And we were able to um, build a reentry program that today has 300 clients currently there today. Um, we just moved our first 12 graduates into their own independent living. Um, and we got another 500 in our mentorship getting ready to come out. I was able to step away from that project to work on some other things. Um, it's just, it's a testament to suiting up, showing up every single day for life, good days and bad days. It's a wild ride, but each day, man, I just keep on putting one foot in front of the other. Chop wood, carry water. That's what they say. Well, I'd say you're doing a whole lot more than just that, than just chopping wood and carrying water because every person that I talk to, and I've had the opportunity to spend quite a bit of time in Phoenix over these last six months. Um, and getting to know not just you, but all of your peers, everyone in the recovery community has great things to say about you. And that is a testament to the person that you are today and to the leadership that you have within this space. What I am most impressed with, um, well, there's a number of things that I'm really impressed with. I love that you shut it down at the end of the day. And because I want people to hear this too, you talk about making that time for your family. You set those very clear boundaries. And there are plenty of times at the end of the day, you're like, hey, man, I got to go. I got soccer. I got this. Uh -huh. It's family time. And I love and respect that because there's a lot of people that talk about it. And, and we are very much, you know, of the belief like you can talk about it, but man, you've got to live it. Your actions have to reflect it. That's where your credibility stems from. And I would say that's why um, you are held in such high regard by all of your peers. I love the fact that you're helping those others that you did time with on the inside, creating opportunities for them. That is a personal mission of mine as well. And listen, I admire what you've done, what you've created. I'm grateful to be a part of these things, to be on part of this journey with you. And what you've accomplished there in Phoenix, in the Arizona area, has really inspired me. I'm excited to see what we're going to do here in Las Vegas next. I'm on my way. I'm coming. Let's do it. Because, listen, this door is always open. And it's, Likewise. we definitely we need to spend time. We need the four of us to sit down, have some dinner together, break bread in, in true Italian fashion, right? Like That's it. it it's That's official. Yeah, it's official once way. we have that meal together. So uh, listen, we definitely got to do this sometime soon, whether it's us coming to Phoenix or you coming out here. All of your info is up there right now. Jason and Sarah, Powerless to Powerful Podcast, Desert Recovery Centers. Listen, he's killing it.
Make sure that you tune in to his podcast. Check it out. And for all of you who tuned in here with us, it's been another incredible episode of Gridability, Power of Perseverance. Man, we love you guys. We'll see you back here on the next episode. 